Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. It is a snowy, cold day here in Kamloops, but temperatures will soon soar over the weekend. We have a full hour with the panel this morning and a ton of stuff to dive into, so let's get to it. Pleasure to welcome to the show Global BC's Keith Baldry, the Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer, and BC Today's Shannon Waters. Welcome all. Good morning. Morning, Shane. Good morning. So uh, let's start off, guys, with the latest in the legislature spending controversy. Uh, As we learned over the last day or two, former Supreme Court Justice Beverly McLaughlin called in as the eminent jurist to launch an independent investigation into that spending scandal, specifically looking into the actions of suspended clerk Craig James and Sergeant-at-Arms Gary Lenz. Keith, uh, how how big a deal is landing uh, Beverly McLaughlin, and what can we expect now that she's been appointed? I think it's a big deal. <laughs> her, the news of her appointment just rocketed through the legislature. And, and in terms of, I'm not just talking about MLAs, the people who work at the legislature, I think we're almost doing handstands because, uh, and I was getting that feedback from, you know, legislature guards, dining room staff. Uh, they want someone of her stature to come in and finally put to rest exactly what is going on around there uh, and a fresh set of eyes. Because I think there, there has been a, a division that's been created between the speaker's office and the people who work at the legislature and i think having someone of, of uh, beverly mclaughlin's stature and reputation to come in uh, i think actually given given her the, the wide uh, sort of discretionary powers that she will have to, to determine what's going on it this does put a check on the speaker's office investigation the, where it was going in places that people i think are a little uncomfortable with and uh, she's now in, in charge, and I think that's a, that's a big sigh of relief around that building amongst MLAs and uh, people who work there. So, Vaughn, looking at the terms of reference, uh, what can we divine? What, what could we uh, kind of pull out of the tea leaf reading there? Uh, they're pretty clear. There's, they're detailed. Uh, she talks to whoever she wants to talk, puts anybody under oath she wants to talk. She can talk to the speaker and the uh, clerk. Uh, and the sergeant at arms. She can take suggestions from them on other people who she could interview. Uh, But at the end of it, she renders a report that goes to the House leaders, May 3rd, that says really whether or not they were guilty of misconduct or not, and some analysis and conclusions. That report will then go to the legislature as a whole because the legislature as a whole is the only entity with the actual legal power to either reinstate the two, continue the suspension, or fire them. And the three House leaders, you know, they wanted Beverly McLaughlin. The other thing they really want is for this thing to be done and dealt with before the legislature rises for the spring session on the 30th of May. So that's the deadline. That's what they're working toward. And, of course, Beverly McLaughlin free to interview anyone she deems appropriate. She can review all and any legislative documents outside of those protected by solicitor-client privilege, uh, which raises the question, uh, Shannon, will this be sort of a real test of what is criminal or what is perhaps just procedural or bureaucratic in as far as any kind of, you know, wrongdoing at play here? When you look at the terms of reference, I mean, the justice, the former justice is going to be looking at whether or not there was misconduct as employees of the legislature by the clerk and the sergeant at arms. So, yeah, I think they are drawing sort of a line here. Um, Mike Farnworth, the government house leader, emphasized that, you know, McLaughlin is going to have the knowledge to be able to really dig in 
on the issues of what has been going on wrong in the House without crossing any lines and potentially running afoul of the criminal investigation that we're told is going on with special prosecutors and the RCMP. So she is going to be focused. Farnworth emphasized that, you know, if she has any questions, if there is anything that she needs, you know, the legislature is going to be kind of at her service. Although when he was asked whether James and Lenz could simply refuse to talk to her, um, he said that would be a good question for their lawyer, but then kind of implied that if he were in their shoes, he would make the time to sit down and talk to the justice. And the premier made the same point that having McLaughlin do this review and sort of the word that is getting thrown around a lot about her is eminent. Everybody talks about, you know, they could not have found a more eminent jurist than, um, than just McLaughlin. Um, the premier made the point though, that it could, depending on what happens, it could end up being good for James and Lenz as well. If she finds that, you know, there's no basis, um, for them to have been accused of the misconduct with the allegations that have come out in the speaker's report. Yeah. Uh, Keith, you mentioned this uh, in your comments a minute ago, but, uh, uh, among her marching orders, any concerns or questions about the terms of reference are redirected to the house leaders via the acting clerk. I assume this is sort of a move to put a firewall in between. Uh, the investigation and Mr. Mullen and Mr. Plekis. Oh, definitely. I think uh, I think this is really uh, clipped the feathers of uh, Alan Mullen, this, this so-called uh, special aide to the to the speaker. He calls himself the chief of staff and the speaker himself. I think the House leaders and the parties were worried that the speaker's office had become this sort of. Um, not rogue, but certainly this independent. Uh, uh, Entity that was in control of the legislature. When the M- and it, it makes a point in the terms of reference in other documents, the MLAs are in charge of the legislature now, not the speaker. And that is uh, that's a big change. That's a big shift uh, because for years it has been the speaker's uh, domain. But uh, uh, the MLAs have suddenly belatedly realized that if you take that too far, they lose power and they lose control of the house. And I think the if this is a sign that the MLAs are trying to rescue control of the legislature back into their domain rather than the speaker because the MLAs are, are bipartisan they represent all parties the speaker is just one entity and I think this is a this is a big I think it's a significant shot across the bow at Daryl Plekis and Alan Mullen. And that raises the question then Vaughn as, as uh, the Justice McLaughlin steps into this thing how important is it uh, that the speaker Daryl Plekis and especially his aide-de-camp Mr. Mullen just shut the hell up? Well, I think there are some people around here that have been wishing that for a while. <laughs> Look, uh, they, there is still things to come from them. Uh, Plekis, the speaker, has also assembled, I gather, a bunch of affidavits from the, um, the former employees and the whistleblowers who've come to him and told horror stories about why they were fired or how they were fired or dismissed or not listened to. And those have to be dealt with as well. And there's another, there's so many pieces moving in this puzzle, but there's another thing underway here, which is called the workplace review. And the workplace review will be essentially an HR, a human resources consultant, workplace expert from outside government, who is, I think, going to take all those affidavits and all those accusations and concerns and examine the working environment at the legislature, not just for current employees, but former ones. So um, not at the end of the road for all the things that the speaker has set in motion. I think it's much more of an attempt to channel it all 
into processes that will be fair, that will ha- have a, a principle of natural justice. So the main thing, that, the thing that haunts the government and the opposition parties here is the health firings case, right? You had a whole bunch of people fired. One poor guy, they all had to be reinstated. One of the poor guy killed himself. If, if James and Lenz are going to be dealt with at the end of the day, they want to be able to say process was fair. It was, it was it, given natural justice. They don't want to get into a situation where it won't stand up to scrutiny in court. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Shannon, uh, Mr. Mullen, is, it occurred to me about a month ago now, said, uh, oh, listen, the RCMP is on this. Uh, they're preparing search warrants. Uh, so much so, I, I remember Keith telling us on a show about a week or two ago, saying that he was going in on weekends to see what was going on. Are there any officers in the legislature? Uh, one of several things that Mr. Mullen has either had to walk back or simply have not come to fruition. Is he blowing his credibility now or no? Um, Yeah, we have had a few statements uh, from Mr. Mullen that have proved to be either somewhat of an exaggeration or just not really having any basis in fact. The other one that stands out to me is him saying that this review um, by an eminent jurist is likely to be wrapped up in the course of 10 days. Well, that first of all, did not seem possible. And now we're told that Justice McLaughlin will have until May 3rd to deliver her final report, which is a lot longer than 10 days, although we may get interim reports along the way. So, yeah, I would say that uh, the Speaker's Chief of Staff has done some damage to his credibility since this whole thing got rolling. Not that that has stopped him from continuing to make statements to the media in sort of a haphazard fashion whenever he's given the opportunity. <laughs> uh, I like that description. Uh, quickly, before we go to a break, do, does any of the three of you see Craig James or, or Gary Lenz returning to work, or are we still all sort of decided that that's not going to happen at the end of the road here? I think it's going to result in a, a, a sort of out-of-court settlement, um, some sort of payout. Uh, that will be a significant payout. Um, these they, Their salaries are quite large, but I, I find it hard to believe that they're going to be coming back. Yeah, Vaughn, Shannon, disagree or no? I, I doubt they'll be back, but the big unknown here about which we know next to nothing is what are the police and the two special prosecutors doing. That's even the, you know, even people like Mike Farnworth and that say they don't know what that's all about. So there's yeah. the big unknown yeah. in the whole process. Concursion? You can't. I can't see it. I it would, it would be awkward to say the least. Mm. I think for everybody involved, although the two of them have said that you know, given the chance, they do. They want to come back and do their jobs. But no, I gotta say, I just don't see it. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, get caught up on some commercials. Uh, pay the pay the bills, and we'll be right back with Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Shannon Waters here on Inside Politics. Local news now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Shannon Waters. While we generally focus on provincial politics, we do occasionally wade into the federal side of things. And in this case, uh, the SNC-Lavalin story has uh, created headlines for weeks now and uh, sort of uh, captivated a nation. Uh, new this morning, SNC-Lavalin has lost its bid for a judicial review of the Director of Public Prosecution's decision to proceed with criminal prosecution of the company on corruption charges, all this revolving around the so-called Deferred Prosecution Agreement 
Conference, with then Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould saying no to a DPA. Questions then beginning to swirl about whether officials crossed a line last fall and trying to make her change her mind. Uh, Vaughn, we had Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony that uh, caused more than a few jaws to drop, and then this week Gerald Butts took the stand. Uh, in your mind, is one trump the other? Is there a truth here? Is it a little bit of both? How do you read it? Well, you know, I think the first thing to note is that anytime we've covered a lot of scandals in British Columbia, and anytime there's a scandal, one of the first things, those of us who follow the mask, is does this thing have legs? And look, we're now into month two of this thing. You know, the the strategy for a government anytime a, con- a controversy erupts or a scandal erupts or anything is how do we contain it and how do we make it go away? And the really remarkable thing about this story is how poorly uh, Trudeau and his cabinet and the national government have performed in trying to contain this thing. Every day it seems to head off in another direction, another sign of things that... Uh, they don't control, and, and it isn't over yet. So, you know, uh, yes, the election's still a ways away and all that, but the thing that standing on the sidelines out in British Columbia that amazes me is how many legs this thing has. Our friend Mike Smith uh, from the Promise newspaper this week said this thing's got as many legs as a centipede, and uh, that's not a bad way of putting it. Yeah. Shannon, who did you find more believable, Jody Wilson-Raybould or Gerald Butts, or do you kind of chart a track whether, okay, the truth is somewhere in the middle of what we're hearing from both of these parties? I didn't find Butts particularly compelling. Maybe it was the timing. I'd already heard Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony. Um, She struck me as, you know, sort of very credible, um, very measured in her response in a lot of ways. And I just didn't, granted, I didn't spend as much time glued to the television watching Butts' response. It was a bit of a busier day in the house that day. Um, But I just felt... It seemed to me like he was coming out and really just trying to do damage control in a lot of ways rather than Wilson Rabel's testimony to me was her sort of clearing the air, I guess, around her you know, her decision to step down as as the federal attorney general. And, you know, she had previously sort of said, I can't talk about this and then went once um cabinet privilege was raised she decided to do it she spent a long time doing it um so yeah i guess what i'm saying in a fairly simple way is i give her more credibility than i do butts at this point in time keith is the prime minister in trouble uh first of all i actually believe both of them i believe both butts and wilson i both think they were they generally thought um what they said. Uh, Wilson Rabel thought she was being pressured, but thought he wasn't pressuring her. Uh, having said that, I think uh, he's in tr- Trudeau's in trouble right now. Uh, there's been a series of polls that show that the Conservatives now have a anywhere from a three to nine point lead. Although there's another poll that suggests the Liberals are maintaining their their lead, so that's as far as polls go. But as long as the election is seven months from now, um, that's a long time, and I think Canadians are going to be talking about different matters than this thing uh, come come the next vote. And I still think, I maintain that uh, Trudeau's biggest two of his whole, uh, whole cards are Andrew Scheer and Jagmeet Singh. I just don't think those two leaders, once the scrutiny is put on them and away from Trudeau, I'm not sure they can sustain much support uh, in terms of being better than, uh, than Trudeau. I, I, I think he may be staring, the worst case scenario, a minority government situation. I can't see this trans, this one issue alone flipping the electorate into a majority conservative uh, government. I just I just don't think this issue is strong enough with the average person. Hmm, interesting. Uh, Vaughn, I, I caught a note, uh, former 
Premier Christy Clark, who is uh, doing some TV these days, uh, has waded in on this particular situation, and I wondered why. <laughs> well, Serbia has a fairly large stable of former premiers, and uh, it's hard to shut them up. Uh, Mike Harcourt weighs in, Ujjal Dosanjh was involved, in the, and Glenn Clark both on the proportional representation referendum. So there's Christy Clark. I mean, look, uh, what she says is uh, going to be stimulating. Of course, everybody's pointed out as well that her former senior aide, Ben Chin, uh, is now working for the federal finance minister, and his name has cropped up from time to time in this affair. So, you know, I'm not sure that this was necessarily the best issue on which Christy Clark chose to speak out. Yeah, and uh, Ben Chin was mentioned a number of times by Jody Wilson-Raybould, which, um, as you mentioned, Vaughn, maybe not the best, puts the former Premier Christy Clark not in the best position to discuss this. But uh, what did you make of her comments, Shannon? Um, yeah, I was definitely a bit puzzled about why she would be commenting on something like this, especially as as you pointed out with sort of Ben Chin's involvement there. But I guess it's maybe a little bit about the whole adage of, um, you know, rather be talked about than not be talked about. Um, so, yeah, it's that one kind of puzzled me, but there's been some speculation that, you know, Clark is maybe eyeing getting into federal politics at some point in time, and could this be her sort of trying to raise her profile? Um, I, yeah, I found it a bit baffling, to be honest. <laughs> uh, Keith, it struck me that perhaps one of the things that's at play here is that, you know, how government works behind the scenes is probably not the prettiest thing. It can be ugly times and the public doesn't get to see a lot of that so when you see a situation like this when the curtain is pulled back a bit and we see how things are operating behind the scenes it doesn't always look the best and the question is did a line get crossed here or is it are we just looking at listen this is how government works behind the scenes we don't always get to see it it doesn't look the best well yeah i mean many people made the comparison of you know how how sausages are made or you know wiener hot dogs are made uh you don't want to actually witness the making process and but i do think this is this is politics as it it occurs behind the scenes. And I think what was what happened here is you had people like Wilson Raybo and Jane Philpot who are completely new to the political scene and haven't gone through the, the mucky muck that often occurs in politics and are sort of brand new to the whole situation take offense at how things actually work. There's no way, you could, I don't think anybody could argue that a conservative government under Stephen Harper or Andrew Scheer would have behaved any differently here uh, on something like this. It just it wouldn't have been exposed because I don't think they would have put someone in the AG's position uh, like Jody Wilson-Raybould, who just was not like your typical politician. And that's why she got her back up and re, uh, rebuffed what would normally would be the case. So, uh, yeah, this is how politics works. And I don't think... Uh, it's funny. Let's say I had a uh, copy with a couple of very old senior NDP stalwarts who've been around the block many times, and they don't like Trudeau, but they both told me there's no way they think Trudeau, the Trudeau government acted improperly. They think this is exactly how it was supposed to work. It's just that they put people in positions that shouldn't have been there because they weren't going to behave along traditional lines. So I think this type of behavior crosses party lines. This is how it actually works. And when people see it, they might not like it, but that's basically how the system works. All right. Jane, in the long history of this country, one thread is issues that play differently in Quebec. That's yeah and in the rest yep. of the country. And I think 
fundamental to understanding why the Trudeau government is torn on this issue is that this issue is playing very differently in the home province of SNC-Lavalin than it's playing in Western Canada. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Read an interesting article about that this morning. Uh, very different tone between what's in the headlines and what's in the op-eds in Quebec as opposed to the rest of Canada. Worth taking a look at if you have the time. Uh, let's take a quick break to the bottom of the hour, get caught up to the news and on the other side, and we'll talk speculation tax and legal aid with Keith Vaughn and Shannon. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Shannon Waters. Interesting couple of days in the legislature this week as the speculation tax again sort of haunts this government. Uh, we had some angry seniors who feel they're being unfairly targeted in the ledge as well as a uh, mayor or two who also feels the tax is unfair for uh, his constituents. Uh, first to you, Shannon. Stories like this are not new, but they definitely seem to keep mounting. Is this a problem for the government? Um... I don't think that the government feels that they are. We were talking to the premier about the issue yesterday, and he certainly didn't seem to have a lot of sympathy for these seniors. He said, you know, there are going to be examples um, of individuals whose stories sort of tug at the heartstrings, I believe was the phrase that Horgan used. But he emphasized that a lot of British Columbians support this tax. More of them want to see action taken to address housing affordability in the province. And the premier pretty much said, this is how we're doing it. We're going to apply this tax. People are going to have to pay it. And we've built a mechanism into the legislation to review its impact and make sure that it's doing what we want it to do. After a year, they're going to take another look. The finance minister will sit down with mayors and communities that are affected by it. Um, and see how they feel about what it's doing to their communities. Now, the mayor of Belcara had said that waiting for a year and having some of his constituents have to pay this tax for at least a year before they look at potentially adjusting or exempting the area from the tax, he said that that's unacceptable, that that's not something that his constituents um, can afford. Um, and the, But the premier and the finance minister are sticking to their guns at this point in time, both in question period and when directly asked about situations like this. And Keith, that raises the point. There's sometimes governments face problems uh, where smart governments recognize there's an issue and they make tweaks or adjustments. The, the former Christy Clark government was one where it had to become a major grass fire before they adjusted to it. Uh, on the speculation tax, are these issues significant enough that the government should be cognizant of perhaps making a change, a tweak or no? Well, you know, I think historically the NDP is always vulnerable on the issue of taxation in general because it is known as a party that likes to boost taxes. And in this case, you've got a government that's created a whole, uh, two brand new taxes, a speculation tax and an employer health tax. And that, that's one that's going to start, I think, catching fire more than the spec tax. So, yeah, over time, I think these two taxes will create a problem for the New Democrats. And I do think you're going to see tweaks to the speculation tax because it's... Uh, but is, what's also happening here is that um, there's... The NDP also likes to practice class warfare. And this is a, a form of class warfare where you do have... Um, uh, 
property owners versus tenants. And Andrew Wilkinson and the Liberals played into their, their hands in this uh, recently by mm-hmm. sort of uh, mocking renters. Uh, and uh, the NDP will take that battle pretty well every time. They'll take, re- they'll take themselves as the side of renters versus the side of property owners. And that's part of the, the philosophy behind the speculation tax. Uh, it's not just owning one home. Owning two homes is just uh, verboten, I think, for a lot of New Democrats' line of thinking. So there will be tweaks to the speculation tax, but there's not going to be an abolishment of it. Yeah. Um, Vaughn, you made an interesting point in your column this week uh, in reference to some of the issues raised by those seniors in Belcara. Uh, you had cabins there that were remote, some of them bereft of services, uh, but you also have property values, as they have been in Metro Vancouver, that are spiking. Uh, and I just wonder, does it does it speak to how you define speculation, never mind a tax that's really an empty homes tax, not a speculation tax? Well, people that have been living and owning cabins on the waterfront in Belcara, some of them go back to the 1960s, are built by their parents, are not speculators. So that eliminates the speculation half of the speculation tax. Government says the other rationale for the tax is to encourage people to rent out vacant properties to reduce the, to improve the vacancy rate for rental. These are totally unsuitable for rental. One of them is only accessible by water. The mayor, Bill Cara, pointed out that it, to rent the place, assuming you wanted to rent a shack up on pilings on the edge of the inlet, uh, you'd need a boat. And you'd need a place to moor the boat when you're going to work wherever the hell you live. So in no sense does these properties qualify for what the NDP says are the stated reasons for their tax. And they have tweaked the tax. That tax has been made over twice already. So why are they dug in on it? I think there's two reasons. One, it is a cash cow. It is going to raise $450 million over three years, and that's why the government's doing this. They don't it's not because it's going to dramatically change the vacancy rate for rentals in B.C. And the other reason is, you know, people have called it an envy tax or class warfare. That's part of it. And the pollsters ask people, do you support a speculation tax? Well, you're damn right they do. The pollsters don't say, are you aware that two-thirds of the people paying this are not foreign investors? They're British Columbians and Canadians? No. So this is all about optics for the government and raising money. And both those things, they're not going to back off on. Yeah. But I think, uh, too, we have to factor in that there's a big chunk of people, most of them in southern Vancouver Island and Metro Vancouver, who are just happy something is being done in an issue that they absolutely despise. Uh, Let's move to legal aid. Lawyers are threatening a strike as of April 1 over this crisis. It's gone on for years and years now. Uh, Rates haven't increased in, I think, over a decade now. Has the province dropped the ball here, Shannon? Well, we were talking to Attorney General David Eby about this earlier in the week, um, and he kind of pushed back against, you know, whether or not the government has taken enough action and whether it's being done quickly enough. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot in the budget this year for legal aid. Uh, The Attorney General pointed out that the province has set aside funding to start some legal aid clinics is kind of like a sort of triage measure. I believe the funding is only for up to eight of them, though, across the entire province. Um, EB would not commit to, you know, does the government have more money that they're ready to put into the legal aid system right now, which is kind of what they need. That's what lawyers are asking for. He did say they would do absolutely everything that they can to ensure that these lawyers don't go on strike and then use sort of the 
favorite refrain of the NDP cabinet ministers, which is referring to the 16 years of liberal government under which nothing on this file was done, according to the attorney general. So I'm not sure how they're going to fix it. They don't have a lot of time, um, but it's definitely on EB's radar. Now, former Attorney General critic in opposition, Leonard Krog, who's now the mayor of Nanaimo, um, let a volley fly against uh, the NDP government, his former team members, uh, saying he expected them to do the right thing, adding they have not. He says he cannot understand the NDP's reluctance on this thing. Keith? Well, you know, yeah, he made those comments to Vancouver Suncom and CM Mulgrew. Um, but this is another, add this to the list of things that the NDP said in opposition uh, is one thing. And then they get into government and they find the realities of government are quite different than when you're in opposition. And there are certain limits and, and boundaries uh, to what you can actually do. And this is one of the, one of the ones I think they've, they've discovered. I mean, they wanted to bring BC ferries into government. Now, well, that's not going to happen. Uh, they oppose Site C Dam. Well, that's being built. Uh, uh, so legal aid, a big increase was called for in opposition, and now the fiscal realities are dictating that that can't happen. Having said that, Carol James has in her budget, and I think the lawyers are going to seize upon this, about $1.5 billion in unallocated spending. It's, it, it's built in there in contingency funds, forecast allowances, uh, you name it, it adds up to a lot of money. And I think the lawyers will seize on that saying, look, legal aid, This is we're talking about people who are uh, lower uh, income people, people who the NDP ostensibly should be uh, supporting. So I think they're going to make their case. Will they go on strike? I kind of doubt it. I think there'll be some sort of brokered piece here with David Eby. I think there will be a bit of a lift uh, to to the budget, not as much as the trial lawyers are looking for. Uh, but this NDP government, it's interesting, they are picking fights with the legal profession in ways that have been unheard of in the past. They've got mm. fights with... with uh, accident injury lawyers now with ICBC they want to go to the go to the wall and now you've got trial lawyers ready to do the same thing so this is a this is potentially a very serious situation for David Eby but I think they're going to find some magical pot of money to perhaps broker a piece here and the question is that will it be enough uh, Vaughn because uh, you talk you do any story on court delays with anybody of note who knows that the system works like they will tell you the lack of legal aid money means more and more people going into the system who are choosing to represent themselves. They don't have a clue how the whole thing works. It causes massive delays in the whole system behind them bottlenecks. So uh, is it important to get this thing right or no? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and the model I would point to is doctors. You know, BC government used to fight fees with doctors and access with doctors, and then they switched to a philosophy of, let's see, if we work with the BCMA or doctors of BC a little more closely, they're the gatekeepers in the system. Maybe they can help us reduce costs and expedite process in the system, and I think it worked better. And, and maybe instead of fighting with the legal profession on everything, um, you know, some of these new court rules, some of the things that are being done to uh, reduce court costs, uh, you know, lawyers are going to stand up for their clients. They have to, but the legal profession as a whole might be able to offer some constructive advice on some of these things that could make the system work better and eliminate some of the obstacles in it, rather than just making things worse by picking fights with them on every front. All right, we got one more segment with the panel. Uh, we'll take a quick break here in Inside Politics. Take up more issues with Keith, Vaughn, and Shannon right after this. Local News Now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. 
Good morning. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Shannon Waters, uh, batting some cleanup and several issues before the show wraps up. Uh, one of them, and an interesting one that popped out at me, was uh, to do with PC Ferries. I know, Keith, you do. You brought them up a minute ago here. But uh, an interesting angle on that, and in opposition, the NDP have long said, listen, we need to build ferries locally. We need to have all the new ferries built here. Uh, Mark Collins is the CEO of BC Ferries. that says, listen, over the next six years, we'll probably have a billion dollars for new ships, uh, but it's going to cost 30 to 50 percent more to build them locally, which means fares could increase by 25 percent or more, saying in essence it makes more economic sense to build them overseas. Well, well it, it's funny. Once you're in government, how things look different. <laughs> uh, Claire Gervana, opposition critic, ferries critic, constantly berating the Liberals for building, for allowing BC ferries to build vessels overseas. I was on a conference call with her, I think it was last week, uh, where she was announcing a response to a, a review of BC ferries. I said, what about this? And she says, well, BC ferries is an independent company, which was never said before when they were in opposition, uh, and they will build their vessels where they want. We encourage them to build them in BC, but ultimately is BC Ferries call. The reality is our shipyards are nowhere near what they were like in the 1990s uh, when they did build BC Ferries. So a number of them have closed, and the ones that are in existence have long-term contracts with the federal government to build federal federal vessels, and they've been locked, they'll be locked into that for some time, so there's no capacity in BC shipyards, and I, I just have to chuckle when you compare the rhetoric of an opposition party to the realities of governing. Uh, BC Ferries will build ferries, and they'll build them in places like Poland and Germany, not in BC. Yeah, it was interesting. Collins went on to add, hey, listen, we don't build airplanes here, we don't build trains here, uh, we don't build buses here, and if it's up to uh, if it's up to us, we'd love to build locally, Vaughn, but uh, this isn't a government decision. It's up for the industry to adapt to make it financially reasonable. I guess in some ways makes sense, but does it does it mean the industry will do that? Well, there's some good advice in that report that uh, they got from a former Deputy Minister of Transportation, Blair Redlin, and he says, well, one of the things you should do seriously, if you really want to get into this, is you should start going to the shipyards and help them invest in the kind of capacity that would allow them to bid more competitively. So that's one thing you could do. The other challenge in the Redlin report is he comes in and says that the Ferry Corporation is going to have to build more than a dozen new ships, and probably those won't be enough to deal with all the capacity and travel issues. So if you're going to build even more vessels than you plan, and they're going to be more expensive to do, that's going to have to come out of the fare box, or it's going to have to come out of a direct government subsidy of the ferry corporation. So actually, I think the Redland Report has really laid out the dilemma for the government. Yes, you can build more ships here, providing you invest in the shipyards, and providing you're willing to either subsidize it or eat the cost through higher fares. Yeah, and I know Claire Trevena and uh, some others have said, hey, listen, why don't we make stripped-down ferries here in B.C.? Essentially, just the most basic ferry you can have. Uh, Mark Collins even teeing off on that, saying, listen, it's the amenities. That's what that's what people spend money on, and that, in essence, helps keep fares down, too. Does making stripped-down ferries make any sense to you, Shannon, or no? I don't think so. I mean, we sort of have, on the smaller routes, you have the very sort of bare-bones vessels, um, not a lot of amenities. There's usually some inside-sitting space, but other than that, you're in your car, on a deck, on a boat, but those tend to be the shorter routes. 
um, when you're spending close to two hours um, stuck on a ferry, it's nice to have some options. You know, if you have kids, being able to take them to a play area. Um, I mean, the arcades still exist on some of them. Not, the games don't always work. But I do think <laughs> that people want to have the options. And again, as pointed out, like that can also help generate some revenue. So I'm not sure that that's going to tip sort of the economic balance enough to uh, make it worthwhile to make the ferries here. Yeah. What's interesting, Shane, is the, how much BC Ferries has successfully pushed back on pretty well every single thing the NDP said in opposition. Mm-hmm. It hasn't turned out um, unless the NDP is willing to, to throw more money. At. And to the NDP's credit, I mean, they have increased the subsidy to BC Ferry significantly uh, over what the BC Liberals did, but they have not been able to get BC Ferries to do their bidding on a number of points that they insisted upon yeah. in opposition. Yeah. The amenities are profitable, the ferries make money on it, and the staffing levels on the ferries are determined by federal safety regulations, mm-hmm. and a lot of the other things are as well. So maybe you could get rid of the giant screen TVs, but you wouldn't save much money because you have to maintain the staffing level and the amenities make money. Mm-hmm. One of the themes that's emerging from this show is uh, NDP promises meeting reality. Uh, moving on to education to wrap up here. Uh, the NDP promised to get rid of portables uh, in Surrey, Kamloops, and a lot of other school districts. Uh, those numbers are actually increasing. So back to you, Keith. Promise versus reality? Promise versus reality. We've had no, I've had, I mean, I've known Rob Fleming a long time, the education minister, and I've pretty well been teasing him uh, for a couple weeks now. What about those portables there, Rob, <coughs> our minister? Uh, and he, it's driving him a little a little crazy because he's realizing that this is not an easy fix. It's, it's, it's going to take time. Surrey's enrollment continues to explode. It's the fastest growing school district in the province. They can't keep pace with it. And you can't build new schools fast enough to, to keep pace with it. So portable, in, I think, Increase in portables is a reality. And I note on Twitter, former Vancouver School Board Chair Patty Backus is constantly digging up Rob Fleming's tweets from when he was in opposition, yeah. denouncing the BC Liberals on the portable issue and other education announcements and saying, well, what about it, Minister? It's still the case. What are you doing about it? And I know it's driving Fleming crazy. And it's kind of amusing to watch, but it is a re- reflective of, you know, when you're in opposition, you can pretty well say anything you want and get away with it. When you're in government, it's you're facing a stark reality. And the NDP's facing this in Surrey, even though they're throwing hundreds of millions of dollars more in the education budget, far more than the Liberals did, there is still a, a, the reality that Surrey's, you just can't keep pace with Surrey's exploding student population. Yeah, and matter of fact, Surrey wants $10 million for 20 to 30 more portables. And Vaughn, you talk to anybody in education, uh, they'll tell you the concern is once you bring in portables, they tend to stick around. They don't often go away. Well, it is also hard to find suitable land for uh, schools, uh, particularly, as Fleming points out, the, the Liberals sold off some of the sites in Surrey. And getting a school built and getting it approved and getting it through all local council and everything is no small task either. So, yeah, it's uh, easy in opposition. Governing is hard. But governing can be more satisfying, too, because you get... <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, final word to you, Shannon, on this. Uh, there is a large amount of money in the budget uh, for new school capital projects. If they can get those schools built, that might go a long way to kind of figuring this portable situation out, but they have to get them built. 
And that's basically with Fleming's response yesterday in question period. He's talking about the historic um, budget allocation for capital investments in schools. He said, you know, we'd love to be able to pop up a school in within 18 months and just have it ready to go, but that's not how construction works. Um, he also made the point that part of the reason that portables have seen increased use in some areas is due to the government dealing with uh, the Supreme Court ruling in favor of BC teachers, which meant that class sizes had to become smaller, so they needed more classrooms. I mean, I think the government really is starting to run up against that reality of, you know, you are the government now, you're being held account held to account for the promises that you made, but Fleming was kind of pointing out that, you know, they are taking action, but reversing sort of trends. He was talking about, you know, the BC Liberals chronically underfunding education for years. Turning that around takes time and building the schools takes time. So I think you're right. They've made that allocation. Now the question is, will it be enough and will they be able to deliver on it in a timeline that people feel is reasonable or are people going to lose patience? Yeah, we got one minute left. I'll just throw this to you, Keith, to end the show. Uh, Malcolm Moore has resigned from the BC Cancer Agency, uh, apparently over the government deciding if the Provincial Health Services Authority run the show with little to no input from professionals at the Cancer Agency. Big deal or no? the cancer agency uh, for sure but um, it's interesting Adrian Dix has pointed out that uh, the health minister that there's a 32 million dollar lift to funding for cancer for the cancer agency in one year alone which is significant this has been uh, uh, this has been festering for some time I mean this goes back a couple of years the internal politics of the cancer agency are, are playing out now so uh, and Dix is insisting he's got nothing to do with this nor should he be involved in this he says this is strictly a issue for the medical professionals to deal with uh, but there clearly is something wrong in the sort of corporate culture of the of the cancer agency and it has been for some time so we'll see how this plays out uh, but at the end of the day there is more money more funding to uh, for the for to basically combat cancer and research cancer uh, and that's good news but the politics obviously seem to be something that's uh, eluded mr. Dix's ability to control it all right so guys Appreciate the uh, appreciate the show. Great show. Thanks for doing it, and we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Thanks, Shane. There we go. There's Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Shannon Waters, and that's it for this week's edition of Inside Politics. We'll see you again here on Radio Now for another show next Friday. Twelve thirty Merritt, thirteen forty Ashcroft, Cash Creek from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray Radio Station. This is Radio NL six ten a.m. Local news now.